0: Welcome to Fear at the Top, powered by the Industry Observer, where we speak to leaders of the entertainment, tech and media industry to learn about their successes, mistakes and how they operate at the top of their class. Welcome to Fear at the Top. This is Luke Gerges for the Industry Observer, and today we're at the Four Seasons Hotel with Daniel Glass from Glassnode Entertainment. Daniel has had quite a tremendous career, uh, but I guess more recently, he's been responsible for artists such as Childish Gambino, Mumford & Sons, Tudor Cinema Club, Robert DeLong, Phoenix, Mansionaire, Temper Trap, Churches. I I mean,
1: I could go on. Daniel, thank you for your time. It's great to be here. It's um, it's a funny moment because while we're having our breakfast meeting, uh, Jade Bird, who landed literally yesterday from the UK, has had her record go up the charts from off the charts to 28, and a few minutes ago it was number eight on the uh, on the album chart. It's really crazy.
0: I uh, I saw her a year ago at South by Southwest, and I hadn't heard of her prior to going on that trip. And the Mushroom guys, I think, told me to go and see her a few hours before she was playing. Um, and the room was quite full, and I don't. And I got the impression that not many people knew who she was or had heard of her. But by the end of the set, there was this real warmth and admiration for what she was doing. It was really crazy, and um, seeing that reaction. So she came here and did a handful of handful of interviews, right, on, on radio.
1: Yeah, she did um, the Tonightly TV show last night, which mm. started the role. She did live on ABC Radio this morning. A few. Uh, she did something after that, which while, while I've been here, I don't know. And she's visiting the Spotify offices and the Apple offices, doing a showcase tonight. And uh, when I met her, she told me how important Australia was to her career. I asked her what her wishes were and, you know, where do you really, what, what should we focus on? And uh, Australia came up, Germany came up. And she went to Germany and won the Reeperbahn Festival Anchor Award for Best New Artist uh, a few months ago. So she's really focusing on the United States and Canada. Uh, the UK she was in the BBC sound poll as one of the finalists so she's got a very very good vision uh, very ambitious very driven and a pleasure to be with yeah why Australia uh, you know it's it's interesting I'm, I spoke about this yesterday with friends I would say if you ask me the number one territory or country that people want to make it when I sign them or where do you want to visit thank you Australia comes up. And I think it's a combination of a few things: the uh, the distance, the beauty, seeing it in movies, seeing it in travel magazines, hearing about it from other artists who've made it, um, hearing about the loyalty that when you come here and work and bond, the benefits pay you. You know, uh, it just overflows with a hug, a big hug comes back to you. So I think a lot of that is said it's an english-speaking country so i think for uk artists and american artists it comes up quite often um, i think people love listening you know we listen to triple j online it's one of the radio stations that people are you know stream worldwide and, and listen to and then there's the the um, export of music over the years that has come from here i personally have had a lot of you know interaction with with australian musicians and uh, and writers and producers so I think it's that. And the other thing is people leave here and come back and, and fall in love. So whether you're visiting Sydney or Melbourne or going out to Byron Bay or talking about Queensland or talking about just, just the various adventures you have. I know the other day I met an artist and I begged them to go to Kangaroo Island on their downtime. And they went and they said it was the greatest place they've ever been in their life. And then the ability to be the gateway to New Zealand and the gateway to Asia while they're there. So all of those things, um, it's a a fun market. It's a beautiful market.
0: And so as a uh, label owner, publisher, how important is Australia as a territory commercially for you?
1: It's very important. Uh, We focus on it immediately when an artist, we put it on the touring schedule. We prioritize radio here. We prioritize TV here, um, live. We always speak to the agents and try and route bands so they hit Australia, New Zealand, You know whether it's to Asia or not, but it's, um, it comes up a lot. And the other part of the, the world is the weather on the East Coast is so tough in the winter if you live in America, especially mm-hmm. the Northeast, that Boston, New York weather, that people love coming here December through March for this gorgeous weather. You, know, you see people come back with a tan. Which is and, right
0: when our live touring is really firing around that time. Mm-hmm.
1: And the festivals. Yeah. You know, you know one of the festivals that people love to get on is Laneway mm. early. It's a sign of, uh, you know, I've made it. And the guy that curates it, Danny Rogers, does a great job. Mm. Um, so he spots talent, you know, really early. So I think Laneway is a, is a point. Sydney City Limits. Paul does a great job. Paul Petitco. Mm. I think that's that, and um, there's other festivals here that are just great. Daniel, your resume is absolutely
0: tremendous, probably one of the best I've read. You started Glass Night Entertainment 11 years ago, but but take me back to when you first got into music. How did you get into it, and what was your hopes and
1: dreams when you were a kid? Well, my hopes and dreams as a kid was to be a doctor. I wanted to be a pediatrician. And um, funny how life takes you, I think you and I have a lot in common, in that. the the forks in the road you just go and have fun and just travel with it whether it's marriage or relationships or school or occupations I think you go to something that you enjoy so I was um, in college and I DJ'd I DJ'd on the radio station and I DJ'd in clubs so that took me to a French club called Regines and that club was at the nexus of world music uh, where, where I was getting as a DJ music from Brazil music from Germany Italy Spain you know, pure disco and dance music. So I was, I was exposed to all this great music. And that formed my personality and earbuds and, ear, you know, and and my taste buds for music. And my palate. So I was never really an American record executive. I still am not. I'm a world executive in that I always look for things outside. You, know, you look at our roster. You've got Phoenix from Versailles. Mansion from Sydney. You know, I keep going and going with our roster. It's, just, it's eclectic and unusual, but it's because I've empowered people to not look in New York and LA. They're wonderful New York and LA, but there's plenty of people there looking. So the thing is to be open to the possibilities that something could work. We just recently signed a First Nation Indian from the west coast of Canada in a small town near Manitoba. And he's amazing. His name is William Prince. So if I wasn't in Canada, in Ottawa last year for the Juno Awards I never would have heard about William Prince but just by traveling and hearing things and you know the last few days being here just listening to music here exciting stuff uh, that I'm about to hear on Saturday at Sydney Sydney City Limits so it's being open but going back to your original question is I DJ'd at an international club which opened my eyes and ears and taste buds to the world of music and the possibilities and it was mostly through the lens of disco and dance music That got me in the studio to produce and and mix records, and I met my father-in-law. He was coming to Regine's as a customer, Sam Weiss, and he had a very, very hot dance R&B label called Sam Records, and he allowed me to go in the studio, mix records, edit records, uh, disco mix records, whatever you call them in those days, and then I guess my career evolved and grew when I took it in my own control. I wanted to bring the music to radio. Not because i didn't trust anybody because i had the passion so i learned what to do with the record after it was done i think many many people never make it to the top in our business because they really don't understand promotion they don't understand the ability to get music exposed and every generation has a sweet spot i came up in the era of 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 radio and from radio it went to mtv vh1 and bet around the world you know much music various stations viva and then it, 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 it went into a, uh, a, s- a satellite situation. Then it went into an on-demand situation. Then it went into Napster. And now we're in this burgeoning, explosive period, expansive period of the uh, Spotify, Apple, Deezer, Pandora uh, streaming generation. So nothing has changed as far as I'm concerned. Those are, those are all called broadcast opportunities. They're yes. all playlists. I never, ever changed my method of trying to get artists on playlists. Whether it's Beats One Radio or Triple J, it's it's wonderful, talented people that deserve respect, that want to be want to be uh, uh, dealt with in a mature, sensible, a uh, trustful way. Where you play the music, you listen to them, get feedback, and then follow up with the artists coming in. Whether it's do an interview or a show or a uh, or, or a session, so early on, I I moved from from my father-in-law's label, Sam, into Chrysalis. And at Chrysalis, I did both. I did production, and I also did promotion and marketing, which was exciting. And it was an amazing era of uh, Huey Lewis and the News, Sinead O'Connor, The Water Boys, Billy Idol. Uh, it was just a, a great little company. One of the artists I met there, or two of the artists, were Australian. <laughs> well, one was called the, the Divinals. The other one was called Ice House. And uh, it was my first real exposure, because I, I didn't know InXS. They were huge. Um, Olivia Newton-John was doing well. But I got to meet the Devinals and Icehouse, and we did really well. And they came over a lot. Both had very good management, and uh, it was fun. So that was my first exposure of what it's like, you know, for to to break music from Australia all over the world, and it was cool. And um, so that's how I that's how I started, you know.
0: And you mentioned there that you empower your team and your staff uh, to look outside of America. How much influence do you have over what's signed on the label? Do you is it true autonomy to your staff or does everything have to go through you before it's before the ink stride?
1: Well, I'm the final decision on everything and I think good businesses should be run that way. but there's a lot of input. There's a lot of leeway and freedom. Um, we recently signed a duet uh, a duo from England called Eider, female duo. and that came in through our managing director, Liz Goodwin, uh, who was very passionate about it. But I wanted to see them live. I wanted to meet them. I wanted to hear them. I, I need to look them in the eye after I see them. First of all, they've got to be great live. They've got to transport me emotionally or musically somewhere. The litmus test to sign to our label is the live show. You've really got to transport us. Um, I, we are not a research-driven company. We don't comb the waters for the hottest social media artist or the hottest um, selling artist in a certain territory, the hottest streaming artist. To us, it's the songs and the emotional connection that we see or feel at their live show. And it could be four people in the audience, but we need to see that. So with Ider, uh, I went to see them live twice, met them, and I got their ambition, I got their vision, and that's when I said to Liz, we got to do this. But she found them and uh, you know identified them, and then we had a committee, and it's, uh, it skews very female, our, our, our talent committee. I, I'm not sure if that's by design or they're just the best people available, but it um, turns out that... Our tastemakers are mostly female uh, in so our company.
0: I was in, again, South by last year, I think. There there was a venture capital firm there saying that they don't invest in any companies unless there is, I can't remember the stat now, maybe 65% women on really? the exact team. Really? Um, and they said that statistically, if there are women running the company um, or at least have a significant influence over the company, it's was 35%, sorry. Yeah. Um, they are—they uh, know it's statistically more likely to succeed. Wow. So, I mean, you've got a very female exec-heavy company. Yes. Was that was that a was that design or was that accident?
1: I, you know, it's, I'm thinking about it now because of the whole Me Too movement. But to be honest, I just thought we hired the best people. Uh, Bianca, who runs our West Coast, she is—I think—the best person at licensing and sync in the business. Liz Goodwin is an amazing managing director in in uh, in the UK. Um, our publishing team, Jenna and Laura are really talented and I never looked at them as like, we should hire some women, you know, to do this would look good. And, um, we have the two biggest cities in America for radio are Los Angeles and New York. The two people who had a promotion there for us are both women, uh, and great women. So, I mean, I, I don't know, uh, The answer to that i have to really psychoanalyze myself but i i think it's because they're the best people but we do skew um i find it very weird when companies try and sign women female artists and it's seven men in the room like that i don't get and that happens a lot i've spoken to women because i asked a, a, a female artist recently why did you sign to that publishing company and she said very quiet very very quickly she said i connected with a woman at one of the publishing companies I said, what about the company that I recommended? She said there was no women in the room. Mm. And the men were on their uh, <laughs> smartphones the whole time, which didn't help. But I think um, you know one of my favorite publishers in the world is Carolyn Elray from Universal in the UK. And she publishes some of our biggest artists. She publishes Mumford & Sons, Church's Daughter, Lawrence Taylor. She's got taste. Yeah. And she does, you know, she does Coldplay and mm. other, other big artists. But I never look at her as like, Carolyn is on the phone, what a great lady. You know, she happens to be a mother, she happens to be a wife, and she's great. But I consider her a real executive, you know, but not a, not a female thing.
0: You left a very, very cushy job uh, when you started Glassnote. Was there a element of, why the hell are you doing that? You know, you're, you're at a job that, you were at a job at a record company as an executive that everyone climbs a corporate ladder and aspires to be at, and then you give it all up to start your own company... What was there? Tell me about that decision making process and why did you do that?
1: Well, when I started with Doug Morris, we started with a dream of an independent label called Rising Tide. Um, When he had reached out to me, I was actually in my house in the country and he said, Can you come into the city? I want to talk to you about a new independent label called Rising Tide that's going to be funded by Edgar Bronfman Jr. and what was then called MCA. And I love the dream. And the two of us went in two desks, no assistance, and we started this little company, which then evolved into what is now Universal Music. Um, so maybe if I joined Doug at the major label level, it would have been more, uh, I don't know what the word is, uh, comfortable for me, but I joined him for a reason and a vision of us starting the next great independent company. And then it quickly, we were successful. Maybe that was our our mistake, we were very successful, and the reward was, Doug, you're going to be the CEO of the world of Universal Music Group, the new thing, and Daniel, you're going to be the CEO of Universal Records uh, in in America. So it happened quickly. Quick success is is something that I think is a disease in this world for anybody, whether you're an athlete, an executive, an artist, and it wasn't what I wanted. I went in there to create something and own it, and this was very, very highly paid I was very well compensated but it wasn't mine I was an executive and uh, it got too big too fast and you know Doug is a great record guy I learned a lot from him but it wasn't what I joined him for and I knew and my wife I have to give my wife credit because she said you've got to you've got to make a change you've got to make a change and we we had uh, there were memo pads on my table I never actually told anybody this but we had post-its and it was when Gorbachev was in power and it was glass... Someone had bought me glass-nosts instead of glass-note, glass-nosts. And I love that word and I said, you know, the openness of, of this guy Gorbachev was all about perestroika and glass notes, which was openness. And I wanted to be an open company. So I, I called the company Glass-note and I liked the the vibe of it because it there were great, num, great companies that had the word note in it over the years. And uh, we started with two laptops. Um, and it was a time when people said not to do it all the naysayers said business is over the stealing the sharing the piracy but i uh... I, I, the cushy job had very little meaning to me it's um... other than the compensation there's nothing to me that that the lure is not there you know i remember people seeing me on the street after i left and every every they speculate and the first question they ask you is are you okay are you going to be okay people outside my kids school are you going to be okay and they always think the worst. and I said, "Yes, I'm okay." And then the fu- two funniest things happened. We started Glass Note in February uh, 11 years ago. and I see this guy, I'm getting off the subway, the train in New York. and this guy sees me said, "Are you okay?" I said, w- "Why would you say that?" He looked at me like I was homeless. <laughs> and I said, "This is my metro card. I'm on the subway and I'm fine. Next guy sees me a few weeks later. He says, I heard you signed a really big record. It was our first hit called Secondhand Serenade, which did very really well in Australia. They went on tour here with, with um, I believe, Maroon 5, thanks to the people of Frontier Brooking. So this guy said to me, how did you sign Secondhand Serenade? I said, well, they were the biggest MySpace artist. And I said, I flew to San Francisco. I met him. I met him with his wife. I saw him. His kids were in diapers. And I really embraced his vision. And I told him we'd support him. And uh, I said, it was a very Jerry Maguire moment. So this guy says to me, major label guy, who paid for your trip? <laughs> and I looked at him, I said, I did. The, next, the only other question he'd ever asked is, did you go first class or did you go coach? And by the way, I did fly coach. <laughs> and I still fly coach. Um, you still fly coach? Cl- I, gotta... I, bu- well, no, I, get, I get bumped up a lot. Okay. We get exit row and then the, and the perks are, we almost always get bumped into business class because I fly so much. So, and Amer- American Airlines is especially nice to me. Yeah, because so, awesome. uh, That's loyalty. But uh, it was funny, those those moments when you leave the cushy job. And I never had any apprehension. I had no. It didn't mean anything to me. You know, was it nice to have Did a Did you have
0: equity in that company when it got yes. bought?
1: I had equity and um, I was compensated really well. But in order to evolve into the executive of Universal or EMI when SBK sold, I had to give up my shares, and, and you get paid off, and it's, you get really paid off nicely, but you know, all you're left with is a check, but it's not your company anymore. So I, I prefer this, because the satisfaction every day of seeing artists and talking about Jade Bird as she grows and unfurls the flag, or seeing executives that I've met when they were in college, and all of a sudden they're now running departments or running record companies, it's, it's incredible satisfaction. The mentoring and giving back to me is is, is amazing pleasure.
0: How many staff do you have at night now?
1: It's about 35 people.
0: 35. So you've gone from 2 to 35 in 11 years. Yeah, but I... there's, other, there's
1: other people now in that we've gone into the management business. Mm-hmm. We've gone into a few joint ventures where we've now um, bought into companies and are supporting um, – so it's two management companies, a recording studio in uh, – and, and a label and a management company and a publishing company in Richmond, Virginia called Space Bomb. And um, so we have other things going on. Our publishing company's growing. So there's a few more people that are not in the 35, but it's um, the dream of the company was to create this umbrella where the cultures were, were the same, but the businesses were different. And I'm, I'm not that hands-on in the other businesses, but uh, being in Australia for two days, everyone's talking about Starcrawler, this new rock band from L.A., Everyone's talking about them. They want to book them. They want them here, here, there. And they're a young 17- and 18-year-old rock band, and we manage them now. So we're not their label. They're on rough trade. Mm. They're on remote control here, and I'm meeting with them in Melbourne on Monday. So that's the great part of the business is that you never have a bad day when you're in business because, yes, it's great to have Mumford & Sons, but they could be off cycle. So then you have Starcrawler. Then your publishing company has the Odessa record, which is not on our label, but our writer wrote the song, mm. and Manchin Air did the vocal and gets nominated for a Grammy. <laughs> so that's the beauty of growth, and a little bit of diversification and, and kind of broadening your your company, so it's not stuck on hit record after hit record. So it's a wonderful company. It's uh, and that's what I want to ask you about. So your it sounds like the biggest
0: disappointment to the success of your last record company was that it grew way too quickly um, and eventually exited. So I'm I'm trying to work out what your strategy was to grow this company so it didn't. I mean, obviously, with the with the roster, it has the opportunity to be five times as big. But you, it seems like you've made it a very uh, slow, steady growth. And I want to sort of understand that and what your strategy was behind it. Uh,
1: the first thing everybody had to be nice. So that's the first caveat. Before they're talented, before Mm. they're anything, the employee, the teammate, the manager, the artist has to be nice. If you're not getting invited to my house on a weekend to come over into the pool or to say hi, then I'd rather not be in business with you. So that was like something I said to Chris Scully, who's our general manager, the day we opened the door. Everyone's got to be nice. And we've dropped two artists who are lucrative and successful and prosperous and profitable. And we dropped them, and it was the greatest pleasure to tell them, there's the door. Hope we never see you again. Best of luck with your career. Because they weren't nice. Um, patience was really important to us. We didn't need to be the biggest record company. We wanted to be the best record company. We cared about patience. When we signed Phoenix, we knew there was a challenge. Here's a rock band from France, from Versailles, who had never really had a big hit. So we knew through patience. And we took a song called 1901, Fifty-eight weeks up the charts, all the way to platinum, all the way to the <laughs> Grammys. And that, I think, told people about the the uh, um, uh, sort of culture and and type of attributes of our record company. I think that that record really told the story right there. It said a lot. It said we have patience, perseverance, tenacity. We have clout. Get them on the Grammys and we win the Grammys. We get them on Saturday Night Live twice. Um they were on every, you know, major television show from David Letterman to Jimmy Fallon. I, I said Saturday Night Live. They went on tour. They they headlined the biggest stages of Coachella, to the Primavera, to uh, Lollapalooza, to you name it, Bonnaroo. So we did all the things we wanted to do with them, and they are an, they're wonderful people. We're friendlier with them than we've ever been. We they've all had you know wives and girlfriends and kids now. And I would say that band really represents, and I'm here to see them Saturday night at Sydney City Limits, where they headline at 9 p.m. So I think the, um, we wanted to be great at what we did. Um, I don't think anyone else would have handled Childish Gambino the way we did in that three album trilogy cycle to grow. You know, when we met Donald, he was on a show called Community, putting out some mixtapes. And then if you look at his career in the last 6 years, there's a very credible recording artist there. Mm. And we're very proud of that job because that wasn't easy. Cuz he had so many other things in his life, you know, filming Star Wars and and Atlanta and uh, Lion King now. He
0: made a bit of a stand-up career going for yes, a while.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, we would leave, we would uh, we we drove one night, he did recording one night, and then he said, "Oh, I got stand-up tonight." And then he would go and film community. You know, he's a he's a versatile renaissance guy. So um I think we're a different kind of company. People say we're alternative. It's a very common adjective of our company. I don't even know what that word means, to be honest. If it means different and left of center, then I like it. And maybe our job is to sign the left of center artists and move them to the center. Do I think Manchin Air is left of center Australian artists? I think they're atmospheric. I think they're textured. They're layered. They're uh, intricate. And one day they could be amongst the greats if they work hard because they're talented. They've got to put the work in. And that's how you become Radiohead and that's how you become Coldplay and you become, you know, Phoenix. It's a lot of hard work, Uh, but so far so good. They seem to be off to a fantastic start.
0: It's a very meticulous, uh, detailed, oriented strategy, um, which when you're at massive scale, you, you seem to lose that. You lose that ability to really focus in on every artist on your roster. But, I mean, you're not a small company. How do you maintain that with every one of your staff globally and every one of your your artists on your roster?
1: How is well, that? I, I, I travel constantly. I love being in the UK. I, it's my third trip to Australia at Glassnode, uh in the last few years. I care about this market. I go to Germany a lot. Um, I travel to Los Angeles, Nashville, Austin, Texas is somewhere we've met. Um, mm. I think that's important. So I think being there for your team is important. I also think our respect for media is unparalleled at the indie level. A lot of our peer group, our competitors, have exquisite taste. They're very good at press, they're very good at licensing and sync. But we're more, we do that really well, but we also care about old fashioned media like radio. And TV and playlists, Uh, we're very aggressive. We're very upfront with that. We say it to you. We really like exposure for our artists. So it's something that's in in you know inbred in all of our our personalities in the company. And there's really no titles in our company. Everybody has the ability to work Apple. Everybody's got the ability to go to Spotify in our company. Everybody's the ability to go to our just our distribution partners. Um, It's an empowering thing, and I think it's it makes better executives. So um, it's a small company with tremendous focus. But as you learn, as you grow as a company, you realize people go down in cycle. So not every artist is putting a record out this year. Mm. You know, Tudor Cinema Club is, is writing a record right now. Mumford & Sons is writing now. Um, so they're not going to have records out for a little bit. Uh, churches took two years to make this fabulous record, which just came out two weeks ago. Uh, Robert Delong took two years. So the cycles... You know, they go. Some years we have seven artists on Coachella. This year we only have one. Hmm. But now we have an artist on Stagecoach, uh, Jade Bird. So it's all different. Some years we have three or four in Laneways. This year, I think we had none. So you have to, it all goes in cycles. Um, But the whole thing is identifying great talent and supporting them.
0: And in terms of managing the staff, uh, I love that idea Mm -hmm. of if you wouldn't have them over your house, we don't hire them. and obviously sometimes you can make mistakes in the hiring process where you think someone's um, awesome and then they turn out to not be so awesome uh, culturally and it you happened. have to move them on. Yeah. And when you do move people on, naturally the issue you face is with the staff that are still there. You can They can all become a bit um, insecure in their own position because they go, well, we, you know, anyone could go at any time. How do you give job security to the people in your staff while moving people who don't fit on very quickly?
1: No one's ever asked me that question before. I think it's a great question. There's a culture. It's a family, first of all. If you come to Glassnote and spend a little time, you'll see my wife and kids all the time, at shows, ever it is. I treat it like a family because I blur that line often of the seven days of the week. I expect you to be available seven days a week. Not to come into the office, not to be at my beck and call, but when I want something answered on a Saturday or Sunday, I expect you to be there, I expect you to go to a festival, I expect you to do that, that is not something the major labels do. When someone doesn't fit, they stand out and you start feeling it amongst your people. Now we recently had somebody move on from the company and we actually helped her get a great job and I felt that she just wasn't the right person for the job, she was actually very, very nice and that was a, that was a very pleasant transition, we actually helped that person when you meet somebody who's going behind you you know you get people who think they're bigger than the company they they've been they've touched one platinum record so they think we can do it i've had anr people claim that they signed half these artists and then of course the major label they went to that tripled their salary found out in a few weeks that that person did not do that i actually didn't say a word to those people but you know they they, they go away most rats stink right away and they're found out and they get stomped out um, i find our business to be small and exposes the weak and the, the, the liars and the thieves, um, I don't dwell on that. I dwell on the positives. What I try and dwell on is to treat the people who are really good well, compensate them, invite them to things, expose them. So very often I'll have tickets for the sporting event or a ballet or a conference, and I will push them. I'll say, come with us. You know, uh, Bianca, who's our head of sync, very often uh, uh, my wife and I are in L.A. or We are in London. We invite her to places that are not all music, and I think she appreciates that, and she just continues to grow and blossom. She's a great executive, Bianca. Um, so I think what you do off the court with people is really, really important, and it's, it's a pleasurable experience uh, of doing that. Most everybody in the company loves going to shows, loves hanging out. So it's, um, it's a very good question you ask about what do you do, how do you weed out those people um, you de- you got to deal with it quickly, and it's it's brutal. And then you have to tell the team we're making a change. Uh, and are you honest with the team about why the person left? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's hard. You have to be honest because the business is too small. And sometimes they pry, and you say to them, you know, they went behind our back. You know, they had proprietary information which was compromised. You know, they betrayed a confidence. You know, they they you know because our information. What do we? What do we trade? And we trade in trust, and we trade in confidential A and R information. That's the two areas, I guess, that we have that, that are confidential. Uh, you know, our our iOS systems aren't, uh, or our, you know, do we use Slack or do we use uh, <laughs> uh, you know uh, email? It doesn't really matter. What, what matters is the music, and the trust that we have with our artists. And you find people betray. Yet you should be honest with your team, and call them in right away and say we've made a change We're about to make a mach- make a change. And unfortunately, this person is going to be leaving us. And you move on quickly. You move on quickly and you have fun. And is it usually you who communicates that or somebody in your executive team? Chris Chris is better at that than me because I'm a little too emotional. <laughs> and he's better at it than me. Not that he's not emotional, but he's very uh, succinct and he's very um, polite about it and more efficient than me about it. I get very caught up in it. I, I give people my soul. I mentor them to the part of taking them from one level to the next. I expect loyalty, I expect hard work, I expect trust in return. People leave, that's fine. Just do it openly. Do it where you talk to somebody and you know you get found out really quickly when you do behind someone's back. Mm. It's it's never failed. And I actually know it ninety nine percent of the time I've known about it before they've told me. Because <laughs> there are two kinds of people in our business, those who know and those who want to know. I just know. I never ask, what you hear, mm. or oh, did you hear, what's his name's getting fired or getting hot? Never, you'll hear me ask that, mm. but I already know, mm. because you just, you know. Mm. Are you the sole shareholder of the company? It's confidential, but I'm not,
0: And I've, I've got a minor partner. <laughs> so, I mean, no doubt you've built this um, enterprise and it's, you would have had a lot of people knocking on your door for a bit of an, a part equity buy or a, a complete buyout. What's your, what's your exit strategy? What's your vision for where, where is this going to go?
1: I't you know all I think about is, is really expanding the business now. I, I dwell on this little umbrella we have called Resolved, is bringing more businesses in. I, this year when we brought space Bomb in, these are great entrepreneurs. People think I'm betting on this artist or that recording studio. The artists are great. I'm betting on people. I'm betting on Matthew E. White and Ben Baldwin and Dean and and, and guys like that. I'm betting on Peter Bauer in management and Jeff Newberger combining to start a very good management team. I don't think we've actually built enough of the company yet. When I look at my mentors and my role models at A&M Records and at Chrysalis Records and at Island Records and at Motown Records and people like that, I've got a long way to go. So no one's ever come around. That can help me visualize that or enhance my vision if somebody did i'd be open to it but all people want to do is give you a better distribution deal or give you uh, access to cash things like that those are nice when you're starting but when you're in our position you really want to sit down with partners that could expand your business so i'm interested now in expanding the businesses with meeting entrepreneurs and going to business, like when I was in France recently, I met these young kids that are managing artists. I want to be in business with them. They keep thinking, they keep sending me more music. I said, no, it's you I'm interested in because you may be Def Jam one day. You might be Island one day. You might be the two guys who started Chrysalis one day. You might be the two guys that started A&M. I want to be with you. And then we'll expand our company to add more promotion, more marketing, more more digital people. So that's what I focus on in, in, in my life is, is those. And I get frustrated. When I miss one of those opportunities and some major label gives someone a check and gives them an office, and then you never hear from them again, mm. they get them in the bucket. So I, I think that's our next form of growth that we do that. I've watched Corn Capshaw build one of the biggest businesses in the world when he, you know, he built with what he did with Dave Matthews and then the ticketing business and the merch business and the management business and the record company, and he owns pieces of festivals. So we invested in a, uh, a, a a festival business a few years ago, so we're, we're doing things like that on the side, um, but it all adds up to the experience where we could have more leverage for our artists and be it, have a seat in the room, at the tables. So um, that's 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 the strategy. It's really the growth of the company, which I think we have a long way to go.
0: Your partners here in Australia is Mushroom. How did that relationship come about? They were a distributor.
1: So uh, Liberator is a record company within the Mushroom Group that mm. Michael Gadinski heads up. Mm. I met Michael at Chrysalis Records. I'm an extremely loyal guy. It goes back to 1983 <laughs> when I asked who handles our records in Australia. And they said, this guy, Michael Gadinski. And um, when we opened up the company, I only knew Michael. So Michael, I saw Michael at a, um, at a Billy Joel concert. I think he's Billy Joel's promoter here. And I saw him at a Billy Joel concert in Queens with my son and he heard about Secondhand Serenade and we went into business and we've had 11 years of of doing well but it was that simple so they're not our partners, they're a distributor and they're doing a very good job and they're all over Jade Bird this week and Mansion Air and and, uh, Phoenix so uh, it's been a nice relationship um, here but I know the other players in the market too. You know, Colin Daniels, I have a lot of respect for, the remote control people, uh, what George Ash does, what Nico does at Warner Brothers. You know, it's a very, it's a very small industry here, mm. and I've gotten to know people quite well. Uh, I'll be at Triple J meeting with them. I'll be meeting myself with the Spotify and Apple people. You know, I've gone lawn bowling with the Spotify team <laughs> my last trip here. I gave up a trip to Byron Bay to go lawn bowling with them for their annual day. <laughs> I was the only outsider and invited. Um,
0: <laughs> How are you at Lawn Bowls?
1: I was better by the end of the day. Yeah. It was terrible in the beginning, but the view—oh, that view! What a view! <laughs> <laughs> was... A
0: Couple of questions before we finish up. I'd love to hear about your biggest mistake starting a business and what we can learn from that.
1: I think the—you know—the mistakes I've made—they seem like mistakes, but you know, I'm a father of three children, and you think of missing your child's chess tournament or school play, or my son's debate. My daughter was a cheerleader. My older son was a great baseball player. And I always think of what did I miss if I did this or did that? What did I miss in work? And the greatest satisfactions of my life have being there for my wife and my three children. Those are my greatest pleasures. And if I miss one of those things, that was a mistake. In business, I didn't show up once for an artist. I didn't get on the plane. I was exhausted. And I missed it, and I didn't sign her. And she was very successful. She won Grammys. She's a big worldwide artist. And it was mine to have. I just couldn't get on the plane. The only thing I think about now is, by being home, maybe I had some amazing thing happen with my wife and kids, or maybe I spent a little bit more time with one of our artists that we do have, a child that we do have, an artist that trusts us and has given us their, their uh, the, you know, the temporary custodian of, of their art. So that was that. Another record, I, I, you know, one of the mistakes I made is my dear friend Danny Rogers came in and played me the Gautier record. And I just overanalyzed it to a point where I talked myself out of it. My children were mad at me. My staff was mad at me. And I just talked myself out of one of the biggest hit records of the last 20 years. That, that was stupid. But again, and Danny and I have never been closer. Our families are dear friends. His three children, my three children, uh, our wives are friends. So what can I tell you about that? I think he respects that i made a decision and i don't think i would have had churches and mansion air if i didn't make that decision so it hurt it hurts not to have you know a record like that it hurt not to have that female artist that i didn't get on the plane those are mistakes they were foolish so what's the
0: learning from that how do you not miss the next gotcha
1: i you you i learned something when i was a chrysalis and i was ascending the ladder as an executive They sent me to this school called the Wharton School, one of the three best business schools in America. You know, Harvard Business School, I guess Wharton, and maybe uh, I don't even know what the third is. But it's there was a – I walked in one morning to class, and there was a blackboard and the chalk. The professor wrote, stop agonizing. That's all it said. (laughs) And we sat down. It was a class of leaders and future leaders. And one of us raised our hands and said, What does that mean? And the point was, make a decision. You flip a coin, head or tails, it actually does not make a, does not really matter what you decide, heads or tails. My son was a debate championship. He taught me that. Heads or tails, it doesn't really matter what you decide, pro or con. In that case, I love that record by Gautier. Hmm. I should have just jumped and said, It's great. I started thinking about the live plot and the rest of the album and what it would mean. and That was a mistake. Mm. I should have stopped agonizing and made a quick decision. And the gut is, when you feel good about something, you should go into it and do it. Signs were there. So that that, that, that was an easy one. And I think that's a, a mistake that people make. They, 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 they're too hard on themselves. They're too hard on decisions. Stop agonizing. Make a decision. Make a decision. Just go with it. It really doesn't matter in the end what single you have. The cream rises to the top. Daniel, that was tremendous. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. It was a lot of fun. Thank you.